Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you again for stopping by today. First off, I'd like to thank Michael Lindsay for subscribing to the podcast to get extra episodes. Thank you so much, Michael, for helping keep us alive and well. Now, I've heard sayings that heroes are born of good men that do their duty. I've also heard that sometimes good men have to do bad things to bad people for the good of mankind. I know that most of the time heroes don't plan on becoming heroes and most don't claim to be either. But if you happen to ask a hero about it, most simply reply that they just did what anybody else would have done. On the other hand, most don't stagger through life like Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith Show on a heavy dose of methamphetamine and just happen to stumble into a heroic act by an insurmountable urge driven by delusion. Then go on to be known as first a criminal for doing it and then a hero who don't already know how to deal with it pretty much. Then again, most weren't in the hat-making business during the time when dangerous chemicals were liberally used and absorbed into their bodies, creating men who were known as mad hatters from being exposed to it all. Come on in, make yourself at home, and let me tell you about one such individual. Thomas H. Corbett was born on January 29, 1832 in London, England, and migrated with his family to New York City in 1840. The Corbetts moved frequently before initially settling, actually in Troy, New York. Thomas grew to have jet black hair with black eyes, which was very rare. As a young man, Thomas took a, an apprenticeship as a milliner, which is a hat maker, and uh, or it's a commonly known, they called them hatters. It was a profession that he would intermittently use through his entire life to make a living. As a hatter, he was pretty much constantly exposed to the fumes of mercury nitrate, 
which was back then used as the treatment in the fur process and make the felt hats stand up too. Excessive exposure to the compound led to hallucinations, psychosis, and twitching, known as the Hatter Shakes. At this point in his life, Thomas was doing pretty good. He was married, and he had a baby on the way. Of course, we all know that something like that can't last, or we wouldn't be here, right? At this point, I was thinking that he might have went mad from the chemicals that he had or something, but that wasn't the case. His wife went into labor and had some complications and made things worse. I couldn't find exactly what those complications were, but it didn't end well, and his wife and child both died as a result. Unbelievably, that wasn't too common for those days, or too uncommon for those days, actually. He had apparently gained a good bit of wealth, because following their deaths, he moved to Boston, where he wandered the streets aimlessly in a continuous drunken stupor. After one extremely hard night of heavy drinking, he walked up on a street preacher whose message preached to Thomas. He began showing up every day where the street preacher preached. He became a, so enamored with what the preacher had to say that he would scream and yell glory to God almost with every sentence the preacher said. He soon became known as the glory to God man. And he soon began to get on the preacher's nerve, too. He would tell, he could tell that Thomas had problems, and uh, even though he had stopped drinking, he still stood there twitching. But he seemed sincere in his beliefs to be, at, so he advised Thomas to join the Methodist Episcopal Church, which was the oldest Methodist church in the U.S. at the time. Thomas immediately joined and got baptized, and he changed his name to Boston to honor the name of the city where he was converted. He regularly attended meetings at the Fulton and Bromfield Street churches where his enthusiastic behavior built on his nickname, the Glory to God Man. Boston started thinking that if it was good enough for Jesus, then it was good enough for him, and he started to wear his hair very long and grew a beard. This guy didn't do anything halfway, folks. In 1857, he began working at a hat manufacturer's shop on Washington Street in downtown Boston. He was reported to be a very good milliner, but was known to frequently stop work and pray, sing, and preach to the co-workers who used profanity in his presence. He also began working as a street preacher and would dole out mammoth sermons and distribute religious pamphlets on North Square. Of course, being back in the hat business and getting loaded back up with the mercury didn't help anything. He pretty quickly earned a reputation around those parts for being rather eccentric and uh, a religious fanatic. On July 16, 1858, he was right in the middle of his sermon when he was approached by two sex workers. Despite everything he did as far as trying to convert them, they ended up following him as he headed home. While walking home, they started acting a bit saucy with him and finally propositioned him. He was deeply disturbed by the encounter because he had actually become turned on by the women. So when he got back to his room at the boarding house, he began reading chapters 18 and 19 of the Gospel according to Matthew. He took particular note of the verses, And if an eye offend thee, 
pluck it out and cast it from thee. And there, there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So, as I said earlier, this guy doesn't do anything halfway in order to avoid any future sexual temptation and remain holy. He took a pair of his hatter scissors and made himself a eunuch. He then went to supper as it was served in the boarding house, ate a big meal, went to a prayer meeting, and then finally walked himself two miles to the hospital. I can only imagine what the doctors and nurses thought when they saw this case. In April 1861, the Civil War broke out, and Boston enlisted as a private in the Company I of the 12th Regiment of New York Militia, saying that he would say, God have mercy on each man that he had to kill. But it wasn't long before he was in trouble. He carried a Bible with him, and all times reading passages out loud from it regularly, he would hold unauthorized prayer meetings and argue with anybody, even his superior officers, constantly, mostly about their cursing and swearing in front of everybody. Apparently, he didn't know what to expect in military service, did he? Boston started condemning and the commanding officers and their superiors for what he perceived as violations of God's word. In one instance, he verbally reprimanded a Colonel Daniel Butterfield for using profanity and taking the Lord's name in vain. Boston just couldn't get past all of that, I guess. He was finally dragged off to the guardhouse for a few days, but refused to apologize for his insubordination. And he wouldn't stop with the disruptive behavior and refused to take orders while he stood in the guardhouse, twitching. They thought that he was mad from being locked up, so they court-martialed him and sentenced him to be shot. That was about the time that somebody told the commanders that he was a mad hatter. His sentence was finally reduced, and he was dishonorably discharged in August 1863. Again, like we said, didn't do anything halfway and determined not to quit. He re-enlisted later that month as a private in the Company L, 16th New York Cavalry Regiment. On June 24, 1864, his regiment was surrounded by the Confederates of Culpeper, Virginia. The survivors of the regiment decided to surrender, but Boston told them that there was no surrender in him. He stood at the edge of his trench and yelled, God have mercy on you, because I won't. Then he fired his single-shot pistol in the direction of the Confederate Army, one of who fell off his horse from laughing at him. He was captured by Confederate Colonel John S. Mosby's men in held prisoner at Andersonville Prison, the most notorious POW camp in the South had for five months, and we heard about Andersonville last week, Camp Anderson. Boston wasn't deterred by his circumstances. He kept up the preaching, singing, and praying to the point of driving people plumb nuts. Apparently, the Confederates couldn't take him either because he was released in exchange for another prisoner on November 1864 and was admitted to the Army Hospital in Annapolis, Maryland, where he was treated for scurvy and malnutrition and exposure. On his return to his company, he was promoted to sergeant. Boston later testified for the prosecution in the trial of the commandant of the Andersonville prison camp, or Camp Anderson, Captain Henry Wirtz, who was one of the only two people tried for war crimes during the Civil War. Of course, we know Wirtz was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. On April 24, 1864, Boston's regiment was 
sent to track down and apprehend John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln, whom Booth fatally shot April 24 or April 14, 1865. On April 26, the commander came up to upon John Jett, who was a known associate of Mr. Booth. They questioned him as to the location of John Wilkes Booth, and after some persuasion, he told them that they could find him on the farm of Richard Garrett. Upon arrival to the farm, the commander asked Mr. Garrett where Booth was, and he replied, I don't know what you're talking about and get off my property. The commander promptly reached through the door, grabbed him by the collar, threw him down the stairs, and put a gun to his head and asked him again. Apparently, this is a cure for amnesia because Mr. Garrett told him that Mr. Booth and a man named David Harrell were out there hiding in the barn. At about 2.30 in the morning, the entire regiment surrounded the tobacco barn with exclusive orders to take Booth alive. After about an hour of listening to the back and forth and between Booth and the commander, Mr. Harrell surrendered. But Booth, who was the least talented actor in his entire family, refused and yelled back, I will not be taken alive. The barn was then set on fire in an attempt to force him out, but Booth remained inside as the barn burned. Boston, well, he was positioned near a rock in the, where he could see through a crack in the barn wall and was peering at Booth through the opening. Now, this being a tobacco barn, it was made that way, of course, so that air could circulate through it and dry out the tobacco, as we all Appalachians know. From what we've heard so far, we know that this ain't going to go the way they want it to, don't we? A poor, twitching, psychotic, mercury-riddled man with a gun peering through a crack at his enemy? Well, we're just getting heated up. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Suddenly, at about 4.30 in the morning, a shot rang out, of course. The bullet struck Booth in the back of the head between his left ear and passed through his neck and out the other side and through the barn wall. A low scream of pain like that produced by a sudden slap in the face came from him, and he did a face plant right there in the dirt floor of the barn. Booth, President Lincoln, or both President Lincoln and Mr. Booth were each shot around the same part of the head, and the damage to Booth was no less severe than that of the president. It uh, just took him a while longer to go. The bullet had pierced the three vertebrae and partially severed his spinal cord, paralyzing him. It was written that their conditions were different uh, as the balls entered the skull at nearly the same place, of course, but the trifling difference made an immeasurable difference in the suffering of the two men. Mr. Lincoln was unconscious of all pain, while his assassin suffered an exquisite agony as he had been broken on a wheel. And being broken on a wheel was about the same as being crucified. They just nailed you to a big wooden X and essentially beat you to death. They then dragged Booth out and took him to the house to assess his condition and try to interrogate him about the conspiracy. In a weak voice, Booth asked for water, and Lieutenant Colonel Everton Conger and Lieutenant Lafayette Baker gave it to him. A soldier poured water into his mouth, which he immediately spat back out because he wasn't able to swallow. The bullet wound prevented him from swallowing any of it. Booth asked him to roll him over and turn him face down. 
Colonel Conger thought that that was a bad idea, then at least turn me on my side, the assassin pleaded. They did, but Conger saw that the move didn't relieve his suffering any. Baker noticed it, too. He seemed to suffer extreme pain wherever he was moved and would several times repeat, just go ahead and kill me. By sunrise, Booth remained in agonizing pain. His pulse weakened as his breathing became more labored and irregular. In agony, unable to move his limbs, he asked the soldier to lift his hands before his face and whispered as he gazed at him, useless, useless. Those were his last words. A few minutes later, Booth began gasping for air and his throat continued to swell and then there was a shiver and a gurgle in his body shuddered before he just died of asphyxia. He died two hours after being shot. Colonel Conger initially thought Booth had shot himself, but after realizing Booth had been shot by somebody else, he and Lieutenant Doherty asked which officer had shot him. Of course, the Mad Hatter smiled and stepped forward. He admitted that he was a shooter, and when asked why he had violated orders, Boston replied, Providence directed me. He was immediately pounced on, arrested, and accompanied by Lieutenant Doherty straight to the War Department in Washington, D.C. to be court-martialed again. When asked by Secretary Edwin Stanton about Booth's capture and shooting, both Lieutenant Doherty and Boston himself agreed that Boston had, in fact, disobeyed orders not to shoot. However, Boston maintained that he believed Booth had intended to shoot his way out of the barn and that he acted in self-defense. He told Secretary Stanton, Booth would have killed me if I had not shot first. I think I did right. Boston maintained that he didn't intend to kill Booth, but merely intended to inflict a disabling wound. But either his aim slipped or Booth moved at the moment he pulled the trigger. We have to consider the fact that eh, Boston might have been twitching a bit too, don't we? Secretary Stanton paused and then stated the rebel is dead the patriot lives he has spared the country expense and continued excitement and trouble discharge this patriot upon leaving the war department boston was greeted by a cheering crowd as he made his way to matthew brady's studio to have his official portrait taken the crowd followed him asking for autographs and requesting that he tell him about shooting old john wilkes booth Corbett told the crowd, I aim at his body. I did not want to kill him. I think he stooped to pick up something just as I fired. They may, that may probably account for his receiving the ball to the head. When the assassin lay at my feet, a wounded man, I saw the bullet had taken effect about the inch of back of his ear. And I remembered what Mr. Lincoln was wounded at about the same place in the head. And he said, well, what a God we have. God avenged Abraham Lincoln. After the discharge from the Army in August of 1865, Boston went back to work as a hatter in Boston and frequently attended the Brumfield Street Church. When the hatting business in Boston slowed, he moved to Danbury, Connecticut, and continued his work and also preached to the round, just round about the street and about the country there. By 1870, Boston had relocated again to Camden, New Jersey, where he was known as a Methodist lay preacher. 
His inability to hold a job was attributed to his fanatical behavior. He was routinely fired after continuing his habit of stopping work to pray for his co-workers when they didn't hold the word of God, he felt. In an effort to earn money, Boston decided to capitalize on his role as Lincoln's Avenger. He gave lectures about the shooting of Booth, accompanied by illustration or illustrated lantern slides at Sunday schools and women's groups and tent meetings. He was never asked back to any of the places due to his increasingly erratic behavior and constant twitches and uh, his long, drawn-out speeches that just seemed to never end. R.B. Hoover, a man who later befriended Boston, recalled that Boston believed men who were high in authority at Washington had, at the time of the assassination, were hounding him. Boston said that the men were angry because he had deprived them of prosecuting and executing John Wilkes Booth themselves. He also believed that the same men had gotten him fired from various jobs. Boston's paranoia was furthered by the hate mail he received for killing Booth. He became afraid that Booth's Avengers, or organizations like the Secret Order, were planning to take revenge on him and took to carrying a pistol with him wherever he went. As his paranoia increased, and we know that's from all the mercury in his hatting, Boston began pulling his pistol on friends or strangers he thought were suspicious. While attending the soldiers' reunion of the Blue and Gray in Caldwell, Ohio in 1875, he got into an argument with some men over the death of John Wilkes Booth. The men questioned if Booth had really been killed at all and encouraged Boston, or enraged Boston. He then drew his pistol on the men, but was dragged out before he could pull the trigger. In 1878, he moved to Concordia, Kansas, where he acquired a plot of land through homesteading act and upon which he constructed a dugout one-room house. He continued working as a preacher and attending revival meetings really frequently. At the end of every service, Boston would walk up to the podium as if somebody had just introduced him, pull out his pistol, lay it on the altar, and ramble incoherently to the crowd, and who probably couldn't get out of there fast enough, but were afraid to leave. In January of 1887, Boston was elected assistant doorkeeper at the Kansas House of Representatives, where he frequently had run-ins with the public and elected officials, which often ended with him pulling his gun out again. On February 15, 1887, he became convinced that officers of the House were discriminating against him, so he jumped to his feet, pulled a revolver, and began chasing the officers out of the building. It's a wonder that nobody was hurt, and Boston, or, but Boston was even arrested, but he was. The following day, a judge declared him insane and sent him to the Topeka Asylum for insane people. That's what it was called then. On May 26, 1888, now getting close to 60 years old, he escaped from the asylum on horseback. A delivery man had hitched a horse out in front of the office, so Boston, uh, being Boston, ran across the yard, leaped on the horse, and this took off right straight out the front gate. He then rode to Nebraska, or I'm sorry, Neodosia, Kansas, where he briefly stayed with Richard Thatcher, a man he had met while they were prisoners of war. When Boston left, he told Mr. Thatcher he was going to Mexico. He's had it with this. Rather than going to Mexico, Boston is believed to have settled in a cabin that he built in the forest near Hinckley, Minnesota. 
because witnesses put him there. He is believed to have died in the Great Hinckley Fire in September 1st, 1894, although there's no real proof of it, but the name Thomas Boston Corbett does appear on the list of dead and missing. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please, or follow whatever uh, you're listening to. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts, including the Deviant Report to go with them, what you, comes out is I collect enough stories to make an episode. Consider becoming a subscriber at anchor.fm or Spotify for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group or Twitter for on at Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend. I'll see you then. <laughs>